an American. I love America, and I love my countrymen and women from all their walks of life. America is a modern experiment, designed and carried off by brilliant minds. The design was to declare independence from the previous order on the basis of a set of universal liberal principles. Listen closely to this small portion of the Declaration of Independence. Quote, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness." Unquote. It is evident to anyone who has been paying attention that this has not been administered equally for the whole of the experiment. It was thus the duty of our forebears to right the scales of liberty and equality. Over the past two centuries, in fits and starts by gentle and aggressive means, this writing has been taking place. Obviously, our country has shown hypocrisy and failed to live up to its promises, but equally obvious is the progress toward the ideals that has been made in America. I'm not proud of those failures, but I'm sure as hell proud of that progress. It has cost people blood and sweat and tears, rivers of blood and trails of tears. The arc of history has been bending toward justice. Right now, there are elements of our society that are so deeply offended by the hypocrisy and the failures of this experiment that they move, quote, to alter or abolish it and institute a new government, unquote. But they often seem blind to the latter half of Jefferson's wise statement, quote, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness, unquote. Activists have been toppling statues in American cities on the basis that they are offensive to our liberal values. Fair enough. Good riddance. But some among them have begun to take action against monuments that show honor to those values, to our universities, our sciences and arts. This is where patriots must have the courage to stand against the mob. The leaders of our institutions, our universities, our cities, and scientific journals should not be called upon to embarrass themselves with admissions of guilt and penitence. They should be called upon to do what is right. You want to make America better, to advance toward the realization of our principles? Great. So do I. I think the vast majority of us do. If our institutions have failed to uphold fairness and equality, then their leaders should fix them. Our new leaders should take their place. But to those who want to tear down America and undo her principles altogether, I am firmly opposed. It is upon the firmament of those principles and with the courage to defend them that we must rebuild unity. This episode is about the unity of consciousness. It has been understood for some time that the cerebral cortex contains specialized modular networks. In his book, Tales from Both Sides of the Brain, Michael Gazzaniga writes, quote, since the internal structure and connectivity patterns change 
as the proportional connectivity decreases, a high level of clustering occurs, which gives the overall system greater tolerance for the failure of individual components or connections. The local networks in the brain are made up of neurons that are more highly connected to one another to, than to elements in other networks. This division of circuits into numerous networks both reduces the interdependence of networks and increases their robustness. What's more, it facilitates behavioral adaptation because each network can both function and change its function without affecting the rest of the system. These local specialized networks, which can perform unique functions and can adapt or evolve to external demands, are known as modules." Unquote. Lesion studies demonstrate specific perceptual losses depending on the area of cortex removed or destroyed. Christoph Koch writes about essential nodes in the quest for consciousness. Koch says, quote, destruction of a specific chunk of brain matter may render the patient unable to experience some particular aspect of the world without a generalized loss of any one sense. The British neuroscientist Samir Zeki at University College in London, England, coined the term essential node to describe this damaged portion of the brain for that particular conscious attribute. For example, a region in the fusiform gyrus contains an essential node for the perception of color. A more anterior part of, the, of this gyrus includes an essential node for face perception, while part of the amygdala is needed for perceiving fearful facial expressions." Unquote. Based on the reliable observation of specialized networks in the cortex subserving distinct functions, apparently including perceptual features, Daniel Dennett developed the multiple drafts model for consciousness. In Consciousness Explained, he wrote, quote, I expect it to seem quite alien and hard to visualize at first. That's how entrenched the Cartesian theater idea is. According to the multiple drafts model, all varieties of perception, indeed all varieties of thought or mental activity, are accomplished in the brain by parallel, multi-track processes of interpretation and elaboration of sensory inputs. Information entering the nervous system is under continuous editorial revision. For instance, since your head moves a bit and your eyes move a lot, the images on your retina swim about constantly, rather like the images of home movies taken by people who can't keep the camera from jiggling. But that is not how it seems to us. People are often surprised to learn that under normal conditions their eyes dart about in rapid saccades about five quick fixations a second, and that this motion, like the motion of their heads, is edited out early in the processing from eyeball to consciousness." Unquote. To my reading of Dennett, he seems to deny the unified subjective experience that we each know well. In the second episode of the podcast, I describe the characteristics that need to be explained by a complete theory of consciousness. My very first characteristic was that consciousness is a unified composition of contents. Dennett asked the reader to rethink this premise. John Searle included a crit criticism of Daniel Dennett's book in The Mystery of Consciousness in a chapter titled Consciousness Denied, Daniel Dennett's account. Searle wrote, quote, The main issue in the first part of the book is to defend what he calls the multiple drafts model of consciousness as opposed to the Cartesian theater model. The idea, says Dennett, is that we are tacitly inclined to think that there must be a single place in the brain where it all comes together, a kind of Cartesian theater, theater where we witness the play of our consciousness. And in opposition, he wants to advance the view that a whole series of information states are going on in the brain, rather like multiple drafts in an article. On the surface, this might appear to be an interesting issue for neurobiology. Where in the brain are our subjective experiences localized? Is there a single locus or many? A single locus, by the way, would seem neurobiologically implausible, because any organ in the brain that might seem essential to consciousness, as for example the thalamus is essential to Crick's hypothesis, has a twin on the other side of the brain. Each lobe has its own thalamus. 
But that is not what Dennett is driving at. He is attacking the Cartesian theater not because he thinks subjective states occur all over the brain, but rather because he does not think there are any such things as subjective states at all, and he wants to soften up the opposition to his counterintuitive, to put it mildly, views by first getting rid of the idea that there is a unified locus of our conscious experiences." Unquote. I've said it before and I'll say it again, John Searle talks sense. His criticism is pretty harsh, but I've read some of Dennett's criticism of him and it's even more vitriolic. Still, it does seem pretty important to our investigation to take note of the fact that distinct modules communicate with one another, but are individually necessary for the contents of consciousness that we experience. No central hub answering to the Cartesian theater appears in our brain anatomy. Consciousness is an emergent property of certain brain activities. It seems to occur specifically in highly integrated regions of the thalamocortical system. The cerebral cortex covers a lot of area and has billions of neurons. What does it mean for the property to be emergent? I've discussed this before in regard to property dualism and David Chalmers. Recall that Chalmers and others have argued that emergence implies irreducibility. Patricia Churchland writes in Neurophilosophy, as I have shared with you in a previous episode, quote, The nature of subjective experience has seemed to many people so striking and so extraordinary that it has been invoked repeatedly as the standing refutation of reductionism. The argument from subjective experience has been most powerful, not in the hands of the substance dualists, who have to contend with complications of their ghostly substance, but in the hands of property dualists. Although there are non-trivial differences among the hypotheses advanced by assorted property dualists, the crux of the shared conviction is that even if the mind is the brain, the qualities of subjective experience are nevertheless emergent with respect to the brain and its properties. Subjective experience, goes the argument, has a character and a quality uniquely and irreducibly mental." Unquote. On reducibility and emergence, she writes, quote, To put the matter informally, if a property of one theory has causal powers that are not equal to com or comprehended by any property in the second, more basic theory, then the property is considered to be emergent with respect to the second theory. Unquote. Finally, she describes another sense of emergence. She writes, quote, Emergent property is also used in the neuroscientific literature with a quite different sense, roughly equivalent to network property. Consider a set of cells in the retina that are wired so as to collectively constitute a movement detector, even though none of the individual cells is itself a movement detector. The functional property of being a movement detector may understandably be described as emergent relative to the individual neurons in the circuit. However, the functional property is certainly and obviously reducible to the neurophysiological properties of the network. Indeed, once we understand the network, we have the reductive story in hand. Although this is a useful sense of emergence, which Dennett calls innocent emergence, it is clearly not the sense intended by property dualists in their arguments against reductionism." Unquote. It is in this latter sense that I have used the term emergence before. I pointed out that flight is an emergent property of functional wings. Nobody thinks that feathers are individually endowed with this capacity, much less the cells that make up the feathers, or the molecules that make up the cells. Thus, we can think of explanatory reductionism that occurs in science all the time. Gazzaniga writes, quote, Here is how emergence can be thought of. It occurs when a micro-level complex system organizes into a new structure, with properties that previously did not exist to form a new level of organization on the macro level. For example, the behavior and properties of atoms are described by quantum mechanics. When those microscopic atoms come together to form a macroscopic baseball, however, a new set of behaviors and properties emerge that are then governed by Newton's laws. 
Neither one predicts the other. Philip Anderson, a leading physicist at Princeton, wrote a famous article in the 1970s titled More is Different. In it, he wrote that the reductionist hypothesis does not by any means imply a constructionist one. The ability to reduce everything to simple fundamental laws does not imply the ability to start from those laws and reconstruct the universe. In fact, the more the elementary physicists tell us about the nature of fundamental laws, the less relevance they seem to have to the very real problems of the rest of science, much less to those of society." Unquote. With this idea of emergence in mind, I'd like to discuss with you an analogy that occurs to me. The analogy is between the unified conscious mind and a poker hand. The hand consists of five playing cards, each with a value in a suit. A given card has an arbitrary suit, spades, hearts, diamonds, or clubs, and a value such as three or seven or jack or ace. With no other information, a given card is better if it is higher in value and worse if it is lower. A queen is better than a ten, for example. In poker, though, the independent value of any one of the five cards in your hand is not much information. In order to determine whether to call the bet, raise it or fold, you need to know about all five cards. Are there two queens? That's a pair. Are all the cards clubs? That's a flush. Imagine you have five separate individuals playing as a team. Each teammate has one card in his or her possession and can use the knowledge of only that card to vote to call, raise the ante, or fold. A majority vote determines the play of the team. This amounts to a parallel processing scheme which converges onto a single action, the choice to call, raise, or fold. If I were one player on such a team, I would probably decide on some value at which to put in a vote to call and some higher value at which to raise. So on a given hand, I have a five of spades, I vote to fold. On a hand in which I have a nine of diamonds, I vote to call. With a queen or a king or an ace, I vote to raise the ante. As you should be able to see immediately, this strategy sucks. Imagine if the five individual players have the following cards. Five of diamonds, five of hearts, five of clubs, a ten and a jack. The parallel decision model would result in a decision to fold on a good hand. How about three players holding fives and two players holding threes? The team would fold on a full house. How about a straight flush with four, five, six, seven, and eight of spades? Again, the team folds. By contrast, a hand composed of a four, a six, a jack, a queen, and a king is voted to call or even to raise the pot, and that is not a good play. The poker hand, then, is emergent with respect to the cards of which it is constituted. The true value of a seven of clubs cannot be known outside of the context of the other four cards in the hand. Now let us consider the conscious mind as a unified composition of contents. The individual contents are processed by local networks. Let's say these local networks produce the equivalent of the suit and value of each content. And there are five such relevant contents in the composition. We even have an instance of binding for each piece of content because the suit and the value are independent variables that cohere in this particular instance. The resulting behavior of the organism, equivalent to the call, raise, or fold of the player in the analogy, is empowered by the emergence of a conscious mind in which all five contents occur. This enables a much higher level of adaptive behavior. Dennett's multiple drafts model imagines that we have no unified conscious experience. So the best we can do is to function according to a parallel strategy, in which the analysis of contents is done by independent parallel networks. At best, he might allow the cross-communication it might serve to provide some clues between one network and another as to what their contents are. In the poker hand analogy, this partial communication might amount to the teammate holding a five of diamonds being aware that another teammate has a diamond, but that's all. 
The teammate holding a 10 of clubs knows that there is another teammate that has a card with a higher value. This piecemeal strategy is little better than my original example. And in any case, why are we even entertaining this? It is self-evident that the conscious mind consists of a unified composition of contents. The problem for Dennett is the Cartesian theater. That makes sense, of course. There is no location with the brain onto which all of the relevant messages converge. So how are conscious experiences unified? Most neuroscientific theories of consciousness respect the observation of unified experience. This aspect presents a mystery to be solved, and the theories have attacked the problem rather than rejecting it as Dennett does. In the book Consciousness in the Brain, Stanislas Dehaene writes, quote, Global neuronal workspace theory proposes that what we experience as consciousness is the global sharing of information. The brain contains dozens of local processors, each specialized for one type of operation. A specific communication system, the global workspace, allows them to flexibly share information. At any given moment, the workspace selects a subset of processors, establishes a coherent representation of the information they encode, holds it in mind for an arbitrary duration, and disseminates it back to virtually any of the other processors. Whenever a piece of information accesses the workspace, it becomes conscious." Unquote. According to the temporally integrated causality landscape, the contents are unified because each is given by the neuronal network activity of an individual subsystem. These subsystems coexist in time, in parallel with one another. But the important thing is that the subsystems occur within a larger integrated system. From the point of view of that system, the subsystems exist as contents. Thus, the best strategy for the game can be made, the one in which the poker hand can be understood in full.